Hey, good morning. This morning's scripture, will, scripture reading will come from Colossians chapter 318 through the end of 4. We'll start off in Colossians 318. Wives, submit to your husbands as is, fitting for, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke, provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on which account I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will also tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we, who we are, that you may also encourage your hearts, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If, you, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Mipha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you have also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Glad to see you all made it through that never-ending typhoon. I told the, the people in the 9 a.m. service, that was nothing, though. If you're new to Okinawa, Okinawa's got a lot more where that came from. I hope that you like typhoons. I do, as long as they don't hurt people or cause a huge mess for me to clean up. And um, they have before made a huge mess for me to clean up. But uh, anyway, there's something enjoyable there for just about anybody, right? So nobody should really be on the team no 
Uh, I just want to invite you to join the team, yes. Uh, uh, get the hat on Facebook, whatever. Um, and uh, look forward to the, the Okinawan typhoons. Uh, not, not something to be afraid of. All right, so this is our final week in Colossians. As we wrap things up here uh, and we, we approach the end, I just want to recap where we've been so far. In Colossians 1, 1 through 23, we saw Jesus, what did we see him as? The hope of the gospel. That Jesus is the hope of the gospel. When we're caught in the riptide of pressure to shift from the gospel, who do we look to? We look to Jesus to free us and to bring us back to shore. We can't free ourselves from the pressure or swim against the current. We look to Jesus. In Colossians 1, 24 through 23, we saw Jesus as the substance of the gospel. When we're pressured by elitism and hype to submit to false gospels, which are truly empty, we remember that because Jesus was our substitute, we don't have to accept any substitutes for him. Last week, in Colossians 3, 1 through 17, we saw Jesus as the adornment of the gospel. Jesus didn't give us parachutes to preserve our old life. Instead, he gave us better. He gave us himself so that we could leave behind that old life and its filthy rags and be adorned by him. Now this week, we're going to finish out the text. And as we do that, we'll see that Jesus is the image of the gospel. That when humanity is redeemed, it is not humanity's image that we see, it is Christ. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Holy Spirit, we need your help. I need your help to preach this text faithfully. We all need your help to apply this to our hearts. We need you to give us spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, and to live this out in your empowerment, uh, the empowered life that is empowered by you, um, not empowered by our own strength. And so we pray that you do that, that you help us to humbly receive the message that you are, uh, you are preaching to us through this text and that, um, uh, that we would do it. There would be a, a people that would adorn ourselves with Christ and that the world would see his image, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we move to this section of the letter, Paul starts closing things out. And we'll see three endings today. Each of them kind of nested within one another. We'll see that in 3.18 through 4.1, the end of the commands that adorn the new humanity. Uh, in 4, 2 through 6, we'll see uh, that it wraps up the body of the letter. So the body of the letter will end at that point. And then in 4, 7 through 4, 18, the letter will close. See, they're kind of nested within one another. We're going to see those three endings today in this passage. So along with those three endings, Paul is going to take us through three spheres that we walk in on a daily basis, the home, the world, and the church. We're going to talk about how to walk in these because as you can see in chapter 2, verse 6, 
We keep going back to that one because that's where the whole letter kind of hinged and where really the rhythm of the whole letter came from. It said, as you received Christ, so walk in him. And the whole letter is kind of like that. This is how you receive Christ, so walk in him in that way. This is how you receive Christ, so walk in him in that way. So the recurring motif we'll see today throughout this text is what is happening to humanity in this sphere and what is being made visible. In the home, humanity is being humanized, if you, if you will. And what is being made visible is our true self. Our true self is seen as we are humanized. In the world, humanity is dehumanized, and the result of our rebellion is seen. The image of God that, was, that we were marked with in the world, it is marred, and the image becomes blurry, and people don't see Christ in our lives whenever we are living out the ways of the condemned worldly system and the old life. So in the world, humanity is dehumanized and the result of our rebellion is seen. In the church, it is not that humanity is rehumanized better. We are not just brought back to the creation. We are brought forward towards perfection. We are redeemed. In the church, humanity is redeemed. And we are not seen Christ is seen. The image that is being restored by the gospel is seen in Jesus. Going back to the roots of humanity, going back to what it really means to be human, the very essence of that is to image God. Yes, we are bodies. Yes, we have minds. We have hearts. We have all of these features and all of these components, but we are more than that, and we're made for more than that. We were made to image God. That's what we were made for. It is our purpose. It is what we were made to do. And that is to be truly human. And if it is to be truly human, to image God, then in the world, what is really happening is that image is being marred and we are being not fully human. That is my argument today. So let's first take a look in chapter 3 verses 18 through 21 let's look at the home and how we walk in the place where humanity is humanized so every day people engage with the world of work and I had to work on that sentence for longer than I'd like to admit because our generation work is not a brick and mortar place necessarily and work is like where they could be a starbucks it could be at home it could be on the road it could be anywhere also we want to recognize that people who are staying at home and not working for a company or maybe that company is your last name inc you know raising the kids we got to recognize that like when my wife is at home and i come home her work, she's been at work all day, in a sense, even though she's been at home. She's had kids pulling on her, nursing on her, crying in her face for unreasonably long times. And whenever I come home, it's not like, hun, it's time for me to rest. You, you've been at home all day. No, I don't go there anymore, right? I don't go there. I am, I am a changed man. 
actually, I get amnesia. I don't know what it is, but I get amnesia. It's so crazy. And I'm like, so uh, what'd you do today? Oh, yeah, I don't, I, it's not, whenever I watch the kids, I remember. <laughs> I watch them for two hours, and I'm like, multiplying this times four, I, w- I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be insane. Hun, you're awesome. Love you. Love you so much. So whether or not you like your job, work in a fallen world tends to feel like you are expected to be a machine. No matter how much you like it, work was cursed whenever we fell. And there are times at which you feel like you're expected to be a machine. And at some point in the day, you naturally want to be free to be a human and treated like a human. I just want to be human. My wife's like, I just want my body to be like a human body at some point during the day. I want to go take a shower without a kid attached right here and another one attached right here, you know? I want to be human again. Home is usually the place where we expect to rest, to be free, to be ourselves. If we live with other people, the basic expectation is to be cared for, to be listened to, to be known and understood, to be loved, to be respected. The reality is, though, our homes are occupied by what? Rebels to God's kingdom. People whose hearts, I'm talking about all of us, not the kids. I'm talking about all of us, okay? The parents, too. People whose hearts do not naturally tend towards every good and gracious and lovely thing. Whenever I'm placed under pressure, not all gracious things come out of my mouth. My tone is not always gracious. It's not always loving. These are people, including me and all of us, people who are in the home are not only encountering the condemned worldly system every day, but have heart tendencies toward living in that mindset and heart posture and practices of that system in the home. And through the participation in the ways of that system, our homes, instead of being the place where God's creative intentions for humanity to, as it were, humanize each other are lived out, instead, we tend to dehumanize each other in our homes. You might say, John, I don't know if you look the meaning of dehumanize lately or how it's used, but that's a strong word. That's a very strong word. I don't know if we got that happening in our house. Well, what is it to be human? Ultimately, what is to be human is to image God because you are an image of God. So let me ask you this. Do you always treat the minds, the hearts, and the bodies of the people in your home as if they were the image of God? Do you handle their minds, their hearts, and their bodies as if they were the image of God? Imagine for a second, if you had the image of God in front of you, how would you treat it? Something that's a little bit revealing, if I just go back to what I said earlier, that the basics of what we, what we expect is to be cared for, listened to, known and and loved and understood, that list actually 
It's a little unattainable if you look at really how our homes are, if we really inspect the way that we treat each other in the home, that list right there doesn't get completed. And that's revealing about how our homes, whether that we really humanize each other or dehumanize each other. Someone full humanity is treating them as if they were the image of God. And to be, true, if, to be truly human is to image God's glory. Then you could say the world system and the old life, it's all subhuman stuff. It's subhuman. A distortion of what we were meant to be. Now the roots of these home problems are really the disordered desires of our hearts. We can talk about a lot of things that factor in. But the root causes is the disordered desires of our hearts. We get our desires out of order. We have right desires that we turn into idols. Things that are good, but we desire them like we should be desiring God. And so we get them out of order. The world does not offer our hearts a solution or a solution that targets these disordered desires of the heart. Instead, what is looked at are merely the causal factors. Lack of training and education, economic hardship, substance abuse counseling, absence of opportunities, these all should be addressed. These all are important to address, but if they are addressed in absence of the root cause of why we dehumanize each other, we will continue to dehumanize each other if we only attack the causal factors, not the root cause, the heart. When Paul wrote this letter in the Greco-Roman world of the Colossians, there were societal codes, if you were, that were compiled because it was in the interest of the empire that in the home, these antagonistic relationships that develop, just like we have today, the domestic relationships tend to feature antagonism as sinners are trying to live together in close proximity. They thought that if we just compile a list of codes, wives do this, husbands do this, and we got a hierarchy and everything, this is what you're all supposed to do. All right, that fixed the problem. But it didn't. These codes placed the husband, the father, at the top as the unquestioned authority in the home, not as we'll see that Paul does in the scriptures. The result that was the guy lived like a god and the women and children lived like subhumans. That was the result. Paul's instructions, on the other hand, while not looking revolutionary on the surface, made fundamental changes that changed this entire code. It positioned all members in the household to live in true humanity and true harmony. Paul changed the code from being a code of power structures to a code of servant structures. This really goes back to whenever Jesus said, in the world, they use their positions to lord it over you, but not so among you. For the one who is first among you will be last. That Paul is tying 
the, the household code uh, that is to be expected of Christian homes into the teachings of Christ and the ways that Jesus showed us and his whole life, not just his teachings. Jesus came to serve us because we needed to be served. First, I want you to note in these household commands, they're given within specific relationships, not category to category. Wives submit to their husbands, not all women submit to all men. Children obey their parents, not all all children obey all adults. This achieves the order that should characterize Christian household relationships, but prevents that categorizing of people for dividing and for establishing superiority and inferiority. There are no superior and inferior categories of people. There are relationships and there are orders in the relationships. For some to be the servants, some to let them serve. Now next, we see the commands to the wife and the children are based on what? The eminence of the man and the merit of the man, the husband? No. We see what is fitting or pleasing to the Lord. That is what they are based in. This directs the submission and obedience ultimately to the Lord and prevents any member from trying to be Come the highest authority in each other's lives because nobody in that home is the highest authority in anybody else's lives in that home. Nobody is. All, everyone in that home is submitted to one higher, the one they're made in his image. Lastly, husbands and fathers are given not only rights but duties. But that's not, that's not the biggest part. The biggest part is what is that duty? The duty here transforms the whole dynamic of the relationship. Now, submission is no longer amounting to the wife allowing her husband to have his way or to dominate her. Instead, what this amounts to is the wife lets her husband serve her. He lets, or she lets him love her as Christ loved the church. She gets to create a situation where he can love her as Christ loved the church. The husband then has a duty not to betray that trust. So wives, we need you to let us love you, let us serve you. We need you to create a situation where that is possible. And husbands, we got to make good on that if they trust us. If your wife trusts you with that, you got to make good on it. You got to become the servant leader who puts his wife's interests first. We don't take advantage of her giving that trust to you, and then you take it and you do your own thing. You put her interests first. N.T. Wright says this. In particular, and I love how N.T. Wright says things, that's why I'm quoting him here. In particular, the husband must carefully avoid the temptation to resent his wife being the person she is. To become bitter or angry when she turns out to be, like him, a real human being.
and not merely the projection of his hopes and fantasies. It is when husbands and wives understand these guidelines and live by them that they are truly free, free to mature and develop within the creative context of mutual love and respect. Wright later goes on to say this, that these commands not only prevent husbands from dominating their wives, but also wives from ruling their husbands' lives, saying, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. And the alternative of rule is not freedom. We think that in the absence of rules is true freedom. But instead, it becomes the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. Rules are given so that everyone gets treated like a human. Because when you don't have any rules, it's the law of the jungle, and whoever's the most dominating personality, they get their way. These rules prevent that. These rules ensure that everybody gets true humanity. They're free to be themselves. They're free to really be a human being in the home, not dehumanized by others' dominating personality or others' uh, uh, negative emotions that they get beat down with on a daily basis. Instead, Paul's like, Don't treat your wife harshly. Don't provoke your children. Serve them. Love them. Relationships come with limitations. We don't always get to do our own thing. We don't get to get our way all the time. They are good limitations, though. They are limitations that maximize our joy and our human experience, even, in our growth. Now, it can seem like a tall order. How do you do this? This is what we naturally tend to do. For better or worse, home is the place where we truly are ourselves. And a lot of times we don't live up to this. Obedience and these household commands are made possible not by trying harder, not by being educated more. Education is good, but you cannot educate the heart out of its sinful tendencies. The heart has to be changed by Jesus. Obedience of these household commands are made possible by Jesus. Jesus left his home and became an exile so that our homes could be adorned by him. How can a husband love his wife and not be harsh with her? By submitting his own heart to Jesus. How can a wife trust her husband to put her interests first if she submits to him? By trusting Jesus with her heart first. How can a child learn to obey their parents in everything? By recognizing Jesus' authority over their lives and surrendering their autonomy to him. How can a father avoid provoking his children? By knowing his heavenly father's heart for him through Jesus. Fathers, How does your heavenly father treat you? Many times I fail to treat my children the way that he's treated me. But I go back to the gospel and I see how he has treated me. And that, again, 
frees me and releases me, changes me to be able to treat my kids as the Father treats me. I don't, I don't say, I'll just treat you better than my Father treated me. Sometimes we think we establish the standard is the Father, that we, the earthly Father we had. The thing is, is that may not be very good for your kids, depending how good your, your earthly Father was. And the thing is, your kids deserve better because Jesus said, your earthly fathers, being evil compared to God, your heavenly Father gives you much more than they would. Their love is not even like love compared to your heavenly Father's love. So fathers, don't look at your earthly father in the way he was and just try to outdo him. Be like your heavenly father. Think about how he treats you. Treat your kids like that. There is a missional aspect to the home. At the Simberger home, where my wife works at Simberger Inc. right now, in the evening, when I read my girls' bedtime stories, one of my favorite parts of the day, I just love reading them stories. I love reading Peppa Pig. I don't know what that means about me, but I love reading Peppa Pig to them and the bears and spiders and all the other animals that talk and uh, the imaginative stories. It gets, lets me relive childhood a little bit, and I like that. I like those stories. But before we get to those stories, each night I do something very, I choose this word carefully, subversive. That may be a bad word in the military. You're not supposed to be subversive, I think. Um, but this is not about being subversive to your employer. This is about being subversive against the condemned worldly system that has your family in its grip. The old life that fits with the old system that is working death in your family we need to be subversive against that system. And what I do, it's, I've set it up so big. What, it sounds like I'm going to do something so, wow. I pull out a book that tells the gospel. I pull a book from the shelf that talks about who Jesus is and what he's done. We read it. We pray. Sometimes there's a question or two that may or may not be remotely associated with what we just read, but I answer them or I try. And that's what we do. This very simple, subversive act weakens the grip of the world system on our children. It compromises and disrupts the functioning of that condemned worldly system in our home, in our family. When you rehearse the gospel with your children, because they are encountering it in multiple layers every day, the world's system, its mindset, its heart postures, its practices. And they need you to rehearse the gospel with them. There is also a missional aspect to leaving the home. You who are in Christ, look to what Christ did leaving his home. And you, whether you work outside the home or work inside the home, you leave home. I know we haven't a whole lot during COVID, but at some point you've left home in the past year and a half or you're looking forward to it. 
And when you leave home, you don't leave home the way you did in the old life. In the old life, you left home just to earn money and just to get things for yourself. Now, no longer. When you leave home to go to work, to go shopping, to meet with friends, whatever you leave home to do, people see your attitude, your treatment of others. They hear your talk, the new practices that adorn your life. They see your marriage. They see your relationships. And when you leave the home and you enter the public space, you go and you call others home through the way that you live through the adornment of your life with these new practices, you leave home now not to just earn money and just bring home something for you. You leave home to call others home, just like Christ did for you, leaving home to call you home. And we move to chapter 3, verses 22 through 4-6. Imagine that we've been talking about, as we've been talking about your home, just get this picture in your head that we're zoomed in to your kitchen table and your family at it, or your living room, wherever you guys like to chill, whatever is home for you. And we're zoomed in on that, all right? Now we're zooming out. We see your workplace. We see your neighborhood. We keep zooming out. We see Okinawa, Japan, and then the world, the whole world. Starting with verse 22, even though the rest of the verses through 4.1 are included in the section about household rules, we're no longer in the home. We are fully in the world's system here. In verses 18 through 21, Paul is speaking into relationships that were created and given by God. Although the world system makes its way into the home through our rebel hearts, those relationships still were given by God and are inherently good, even though they've been corrupted. Not so with the relationship that starts in verse 22. The relationship of bondservant and master was not created nor given by God, but arose out of evil hearts and out of a condemned worldly system that those evil hearts were participating in. That's why I include 322 through 4.1. That's why I included in the sphere of the world, not the sphere of the home. Because in the home, people are humanized. People are being freed to be a human. People are being made free to be themselves. But in the world, humanity is dehumanized. And Paul here in 322-41 injects the gospel into this dehumanizing relationship much the same way that he did it with the relationships inside the home sphere. Now it's important, just as important to know what Paul does not say as what he does say. Okay, it's important to know what he's not saying. Paul does not Christianize slavery. Paul does not use the Lord's name to whitewash a fundamentally unjust institution. Neither does Paul focus on educating people out of bigotry. We need some education, right? We need some serious education. But that's not Paul's approach here. Paul is speaking to the heart. He's speaking to the root. Lastly, Paul doesn't focus on the institution itself, but rather the relationship and the hearts 
that are in that relationship. While the world looks at the establishment and the dismantling of inst institutions alone as hope, the gospel looks to Christ as a hope now. That whatever place you are in, no matter what relationship you are in, no matter what dynamic you are in, you receive this identity in Christ now. Whether the world validates it or the world recognizes it, you have this now. It is real. New identity. New humanity. And while the world looks to only the, the establishment and the dismantling of institutions for hope, we don't have to wait for that. The seeds of the dismantling of unjust institutions are right here in the gospel, but Paul's not leaving these people to wait for that. He gives them hope now. He gives them humanity now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In 1 Corinthians 7.24, a few verses later, he says, So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. The message is, whatever place you find yourself in, live out the new ways and the new identity right there in the reality of the heavenly kingdom. And we see that laid out here as Paul, sentence by sentence, reorients everything around Jesus' status as the ultimate master and source from whom both people in the positions of bondservant and master receive their very humanity and are established as equals. There in 4.1 where it says treat them with fairness actually translates back in the original to equality. Moving to 4 verses 2 through 6, we receive further general instructions on how the new humanity walks in a world that dehumanizes. Lauren Dalton, our, our women's ministry coordinator, preached on Colossians 4 recently at the women's conference, and I liked how she summarized these verses. Uh, she said that this is advancing the gospel through steadfast prayer and clear speech. And Lauren also had this to say. So many of the false gospels in the world are half-truths, messages that distort or twist maybe only one or two aspects of the gospel. But it is in the most minute of changes to the gospel message that the true saving gospel, the gospel that brings salvation, true life, joy, and hope, is emptied of its power. A false gospel is no gospel at all. Our speech must be clear. It must be clear. So for people living in the world under its dehumanizing systems and power, the people we leave our homes so that they can see and hear the gospel, the need for us is to proclaim to them the true gospel clearly. There is hope in the gospel for us because the Son of God became human and subjected himself to be dehumanized so that out of a dehumanized humanity would come a redeemed humanity. A redeemed humanity is born out of the humanization and dehumanization of the Son of God on our behalf. 
This brings us to the final section. The closing of the letter, starting with verse 7, I admit, it's, it's naturally something that we tune out, right? Okay, he's saying goodbye. He's giving greetings. Okay, tune it out. We think that there's no content there for us, but pay attention. Right here in these verses, God is giving us something that completes the whole message of Colossians. This, this section right here puts flesh and blood on the concept of redemption. We need to talk about redemption as a concept so our minds get it, but we also have to see it, the flesh and blood on it. We have to see it in substance. So it doesn't remain an abstract idea that is removed from the world where humanity lives. Here we can see, get this, that because the Son of God put on flesh, flesh and blood can put on the Son of God. This section is about the church walking in Christ where humanity is redeemed. Now first, Paul affirms Tychicus. And don't worry. I'm going to spend a little time on Tychicus. I'm not going to spend as much time on the rest of them. But he says here about Tychicus, he calls him a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. He just affirms him. Tychicus is one of the bearers of this letter. He will take this letter to the Colossians and deliver it physically. So Tychicus, he's not only a mailman, though. He's, Paul says he's going to encourage your hearts and he's going to tell you how we are. Paul doesn't just send a letter. He sends people. You know how text-based conversations can get us in trouble sometimes? Ever wrote an email? Somebody got your tone, your meaning, your intention really wrong. And they're like, they're replying. You're like, oh, man, I did not mean that. I did not. Nope, nope, nope. All right. So miscommunication happens. It's the very nature of text communication that it is limited. And Paul, think of this, he didn't have animated GIFs. He didn't have those. Japan hadn't yet created the emoji. He couldn't put any emojis into the Colossians letter. And although this letter is the word of God, and that because of its divine authorship, it is perfect and set apart from all other writings, and is not limited in the same way, despite that, God has ordained a place for you and I to communicate the gospel message. There is a place for us to fulfill, for flesh and blood to transmit the message of God and the image of God. Paul writes in Romans 10, 14 through 15, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We are to be senders. We are to be preachers. I'm not the only preacher in this room. The Bible says that I'm not supposed to do the work of the ministry, but I'm supposed to equip you to do the work of the ministry. You are preaching with your lives and with your words. Whenever you become the church, from the church gathered right now to the church scattered, you are preaching to the world. Your marriage is a message to the world. 
in your relationships, the way you treat your children, is a message that the world is reading. It's being shouted out loud as soon as you walk out these doors. Then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, he says, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's why last week when Heather came up here and shared her story, she didn't just share a story. She was a story. She is a letter from Christ to us written with the spirit of the living God on a human heart. That's what you saw last week is Christ's letter to you in flesh and blood, someone in process of redemption. We're seeing the, the reality of the kingdom made visible through Heather standing here and testifying about what the Father has done in her life. She's a letter to us. In the Yomitan MC, i got to brag about it one more time. I'm almost done with this series. I'm going to brag about the Yomitan MC. I know that there's plenty to brag about the other MCs. If you get the mic sometime, I'll gladly listen to you brag about your MC. There's a lot of good things happening in the MCs. But I just want to say that in the Yomitan MC, I saw difficult topics tackled. Like, for instance, how do we walk out the gospel in relation to transgenderism. That needs to be talked out so it can be walked out. And it was a difficult topic. And you know what? You know what was the best part about it? It was, it was not just the way that we talked and we were like, oh, we wrapped up this nice conclusion. We know everything. We didn't. We didn't at all. But you know what was good out of that conversation? Is whenever we had it, the people around the table talked about transgenderism with real people in mind. As if our conversation right now has to do with real people, that the conclusions that we reach will impact real flesh and blood people's lives. It will impact hearts, the way we treat people. It could impact eternities. The gospel has to do with real people, and the way we choose to walk it out has implications for those who are around us. And our conversations and conclusions are lacking if they do not consider how they impact real people. That's what this last part is in Colossians. Paul is pointing out real flesh and blood people, and he's, he's showing the intensely personal uh, aspect of the gospel. And he's, he, he, he points out Archippus, and he's, and he's like, hey, tell Archippus to fulfill the ministry that he's received. Wow! One guy, Paul points out. But you know what? The scriptures are pointing us out, and the Holy Spirit is pointing us out every day, saying, this is what you've received. Not just the general commands to all the body, but I've got something for you to do. I've got people for you to speak to. I've got people for you to live out the gospel in front of. This is the ministry you've received. And he applies it to you personally. And he speaks your name. And he says, no one else has received this specific ministry. It's for you. 
In verses 10 through 17, that's what we see. We see these, these personal greetings and affirmations and encouragements and instructions. But the focus I want to focus on here at the end is verse 18. Paul personally signs off and he says, remember my chains. Now the tone of that we know is not self-pity. Paul's not saying, hey, remember, you guys are free. Feel sorry for me. I'm still in chains. No, remember back in chapter 1, verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf. On your behalf. I rejoice in it. Paul himself was being dehumanized through unjust imprisonment for preaching the truth. He should never have been imprisoned. He did nothing wrong. But he is not saying this for self-pity. Instead, he's re rejoicing that people are given the occasion to hear and see the gospel through his suffering. And not only the Colossians, but people who are really, in a very real way, living in the world and under the power of its dehumanizing institutions, like the man Onesimus who would be very easy to just look right over because Paul just mentions him. But Onesimus is kind of the central figure along with another person in the letter to Philemon that we have in the scriptures. That whole letter was written about Onesimus and the Colossian master that he ran away from. Onesimus was a runaway slave. And so Paul sends back Tychicus and Onesimus along with him, and he sends back a letter to the Colossians and a letter to Philemon. And Onesimus is delivering this letter to his master that he ran away from. If you look in chapter 4, verse 9 here, that's where you see Onesimus. After escaping, Onesimus encounters Paul, somewhere along the way, and trusts in Christ. We see that from what we read in Philemon. Now, Paul sends him back to Philemon with the letter, and just summarizing what he says, he says, he has become a spiritual son to me, and he's, I have become his spiritual father. I'm sending him back to you, but I want you to know I'm not sending a piece of property back to you. I'm sending my son back to you. He became my son, and I'm sending him to you. And so when I send him to you, I send him with him my very heart. So when you, you receive him back, when he comes back, you receive him back now not as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. That's how you're to receive my son. In Philemon 18, Paul's suffering and the work in the gospel just really merges and closely mirrors Christ. He says this in Philemon 18. He says, If Onesimus has wronged you at all, whatever debt he has, charge it to my account. Friends, this is what Christ has done for us. Paul, his suffering is a picture of that. We are all Onesimus. We have run away and rebelled against our master, God. And we have rebelled against his kingdom and against his rightful ownership of us. We are his creations, but we said, we don't trust you to have our best interests in mind. We're going to do our own thing. 
But Christ changes our identity from slaves to sons and daughters and our wrongs and our debt are charged to his account through our faith in him. How does Paul refer to Onesimus here in 4.9? He doesn't even mention that he's a slave here. He doesn't mention that he's a bondservant. He says instead he's a faithful and beloved brother. And he says he's one of you. He's a Colossian. This is the same way that he spoke about Epaphras. He said about Epaphras, he's one of you. Epaphras is the suffering church planter. How much would the Colossians love to receive their pastor back who's in chains? How, what kind of welcome, what kind of party they would throw, what kind of emotions they would go through if Epaphras walked through the door and to have him back. And Paul is essentially saying, as you would receive Epaphras, receive Onesimus. He's one of you. This is what Christ has done for us. He suffered so that the Father would receive us runaway slaves as he would receive his very own Son. Receiving runaway slaves, us, as his very own Son, because his Son took on our debt, because his Son took on the identity that we had. Now we get the identity of son or daughter. And I just, I want to mention this before I, before, I, before I give you a last sentence here. Imagine Onesimus handing that letter to Philemon, to his master that he ran away from. And there is a picture of, like I just said, Onesimus being received back by the father. But there's also, there's also the reverse picture where Christ is, has changed us and he sends us back to the world to give a letter to the world that says, I'm done with you. I'm done being your slave. Christ has changed me. I'm done living in your dehumanizing institution. Dehumanizing me, dehumanizing others. Done with it. I've received a letter that says I'm done. Now, I don't, now, I don't think that that was Onesimus's attitude. That's our attitude to the world whenever we hand the letter to the condemned worldly system in that old life. Onesimus actually was being received back by a Christian brother, and Paul was encouraging him to receive him as a brother. Just to be clear about the context. So we'll sum up like this. I'm going to let you go. To see a person humanized is to see their true self. In the home, we're humanized. We're free. We're supposed to free each other to be our true selves, to be human. To see people as dehumanized is to see the result of humanity's rebellion and the condemned worldly system that perpetuates that. But to see people redeemed is to see Christ, the very image of the gospel. Now, Darren is going to come up here. He's going to lead us in a prayer of confession, repentance, placing our faith in Christ again. So we're going to join with him in that now.